Well, you should have a set of notes. If you don't, they cost after today. No, not actually, they don't. Uh, and you can go online. I think I said in the, I don't know if you got our email that we send out, 120 lessons, over 120 lessons, which is over 400 pages of notes are available to you online, which is, which I love is that they're searchable, uh, which is a, an, another feature that we added. But uh, that just allows you to, if you want to do some work, and I know some of you are teaching Bible study, so hopefully it's of use to you. If you have trouble sleeping at night, you can even listen to one of the recordings. It'll be great. So we are going through the book of Philippians. The title of the series is, is How to Live the Christian Life Well. And Paul's going to reiterate that several times as we move through. Uh, as we do, don't forget, by the way, I, I included this in the slide, but uh, we are filling up quickly. If you've not signed up to hear uh, Chisholm come and speak, uh, trust me, you're going to miss it. He is fantastic. I am thrilled that we have the honor to have him come. And the board has seen fit to extend an invitation to him. Uh, Bob Chisholm is an Old Testament professor. Don't let that scare you. Uh, uh, he is a prolific author. Don't let that scare you because he's an excellent speaker, uh, very stimulating. If you have young people as well who are struggling, he'd be great. He, he really is. Uh, he's not afraid. Yes, Tom Flynn. It's free and it's available to your spouses. To, you can bring your junior hires, high schoolers. Uh, it's free and it'll be in this room. Anyway, that was a side note. Back to Philippians. Just to review, just from last week, if you weren't with us, we're dealing with a city that's located in Macedonia, modern Greece. It's the first city that Paul will visit on his second missionary journey into Europe. Uh, it was a Roman colony, which is very significant to our study. Uh, if you lived in Philippi, most likely, if you're a male, you had served in the army and you received a parcel of land for free. Uh, you're exempt from certain taxes. Uh, having this status as a city, as a colony, is very, very significant. That is why they freaked out when Paul said, by the way, you just scourged, you just beat a, and imprisoned a Roman citizen because they could have been stripped of this title, uh, which they loved. Uh, and you can expect you know, understanding the free taxes. This is the city today, the ruins. It's spectacular. And I, I talked about all this. So uh, if you want to talk more, I'm happy to do so. But again, it's the first church established in Europe, and it becomes one of Paul's closest allies in ministry, doesn't it? Uh, this isn't like the church at Corinth that caused a, gave him gas more than once. Not the church at Philippi. Uh, they were very dear to him, which is interesting because at Corinth, he spent 18 months. But Philippi was only a brief stay, and he will visit this site more than once as we know, and he'll keep close contact as we see from this letter. We mentioned that the backdrop is that they have, this church has heard that Paul's imprisoned. They sent a fellow um, from uh, this region, a leader of the church called Epaphroditus. Uh, I'm not going to give you a quiz over that, all right? But Epaphroditus is a leader of the church at Philippi. He's been sent to minister to Paul. He gets sick. The church hears about it, Paul's concerned, and eventually Epaphroditus gets well, and he sends this letter with Epaphroditus back to the church. So that's the context, and that's one of the reasons why he's writing. But he will also write to encourage the church, as we've seen. He will also write to rejoice in their progress and call for continued growth, and obviously he'll write to thank the church. I said it's a perfect missionary letter, really, uh, of one of gratitude for support and 
encouraging them to keep on keeping on. And we see that in this opening. So let's look at this. Philippians 1, 3 through 11 is the opening prayer. This is standard, not just in Christian literature of the first century. This is standard in all Greek writing letters of this time frame. You have the writer to the recipient, greetings, and then there's usually kind of a well-wish or opening statement. And in, for Paul, it's, a, it's usually a prayer. He states in verse 3, I thank my God. Now, immediately you should sit up and take nourishment because who are the authors? Verse 1, Paul. Paul and Timothy. But he doesn't use a first-person plural, does he? He personalizes it now. He takes it right to himself. He says, I thank my God. Notice the personal touch. Every time I remember you. Who's the you? Go back to verse 1. To all the saints. Four times he will say y'all in this prayer. So watch this. It's very inclusive I always pray with joy in my every prayer for you all because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am sure of this very thing. And the tense of the verb in the Greek indicates that it's one of surety. That the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is right for me to think this about all of you because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment. Remember, Paul is writing from prison in Rome. There is the strong possibility of capital punishment that he faces, execution. As we know, uh, he, he is not. He is released eventually. And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, all of you became partners in God's grace together with me. For God is my witness that I long for all of you, there it is again, with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight so that you can decide what is best and thus be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's unpack this prayer. It really breaks down into two sections. The first of these, as you see there in letter A of your notes, is a prayer of thanksgiving. A prayer of thanksgiving. Notice, I've already alluded a little to this, his prayer. It is intentional, right? Uh, his prayer life for them is extremely direct. He knows exactly what he needs to be praying for, and we're going to highlight that later in verses 9 through 11. It's also personal, which we've just talked about. He is intimately involved with this church. Uh, many of you have been on, how many of you have been on a short-term missions trip or done something to that? Okay, a ton of you. Uh, you know when you've ministered to those people, it's, it's hard to say goodbye, isn't it? I can still remember that little Romanian boy clinging to my uh, trousers, just weeping because we had to leave. And you know, you, you'll never forget that. And the people you've, you've had an opportunity to minister to. And, and for Paul, it's very personal. He, he loves the Philippian church. And third, it's consistent. He says, notice what he says, every time in my every prayer, not that this, some English translations have the idea that he's, he's praying 24-7. I don't think that's the case. Um, I, I mentioned there O'Brien's commentary on Philippians. It's there, the quote. He says, when Paul states that he gives thanks continually, he means that he did not forget them in his regular times of prayer. 
And I think that's probably the case going on here. He does not forget them. There's a constant prayer for them. And so it's consistent. And then fourth, it's all-inclusive. He's praying for all of them. Even Odia and Syntyche, right? Odie and Stinky. He'll get to those two ladies in chapter four. We'll get to them. But he's praying for all of them. Even the overseers and the deacons, as he mentioned in verse uh, one. So this well-established church, he's praying for them. He doesn't miss it. And he gives us the manner in which he prays in the next verse, which is, notice, it's with joy, right? I always pray with joy in my every prayer. He's reiterating what we just saw, that it's personal, it's intentional and consistent. But with that is this idea of rejoicing. This term is loaded, isn't it? The verb or its cognate, the noun, occurs 14 times in this letter. Joy, joy, joy. It's interesting. Um, Luke's gospel, who also worked with Paul, Luke Acts also stresses joy. It begins with joy when John leaps in his mother's room. Remember that scene? And the gospel ends with the disciples being joyful. It's interesting. And, and that rings through in Paul's ministry. And we're going to look later as a group, the theology of joy. It's very significant. I quote Philman in his commentary. It says, Paul's joy is unrelated to his own comfort. Remember, where's Paul? Prison, right? The prospect of, of execution is very real. And as a Roman citizen, he would have been beheaded, which is a pain in the neck. Anyway, we'll go on. That's awful. Is instead the contentment that results from seeing the goals of the gospel advanced, whatever that might mean in terms of personal inconvenience. And Hawthorne also writes in his commentary, joy is an understanding of existence that encompasses both elation and depression that can accept with creative submission events which bring delight or dismay because joy, here it is, allows one to see beyond any particular event to the sovereign Lord who stands above all events and ultimately has control. Do you notice what is it ultimately that brings Paul joy? We're going to talk about this, but what's, what's he focused on? The present? The future. Notice what he says in verse 6. We'll get to this in a minute, but it's until the day of Christ Jesus. His joy is not dictated by present events. It's focused on future event. I should say the future event, right? I, I would dare say, this is being recorded. <laughs> um, it's easy for the church to forget the eschaton. In fact, I often hear pastors say, well, you know, it's eschatology, it's, it's too troublesome, it's problematic, and we, you know, who knows, we'll just, it all pans out at the end anyways. Well, it's, the eschatology is what drives Paul's ethics, right? It's what gives him hope, it's what gives him joy. He's focusing on the end. We, not, we may not know exactly how the Lord's going to win, and we could all debate that, and we got pre-trib, post-trib, right? Uh, we got pre-mill, ah-mill, saw-mill, I don't know. We got the whole list, right? The, the point is, the Lord is coming back. And, and, and again, we could dialogue and, uh, all, on all the specifics of, of our eschatology, but the point is that's what's driving Paul's theology. It's driving Paul's mission, is knowing that you know, there is a day coming. 
right? And so we see in this, this prayer of thanksgiving that the nature of it as well as the, as the manner in which it's delivered, and that is with joy. Questions on these first three verses? They're so significant. And again, if you've been involved in ministry of any sort, you know exactly wh where Paul is coming from, right? The, just his heartbeat, the opportunity being involved. No? Okay, well, we'll move right along. All is clear. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 because it's here that he gives us the reasons for why he is joyful. The first of these is they are partners with him in the ministry. And that's what he says, because you've, of your participation in the gospel. How have they become partners? Help me out. What do we know? How have they become partners? I mean, the obvious one is what? Financial, right? But I would argue the context is well beyond just financial. How are they partners with Paul in the ministry? Prayer. Prayer. What else? Fellowship. Fellowship. Salvation. Good. You guys, we could write a commentary. This is good. You're nailing them, right? All of these issues, it's, it's very broad and encompassing, and I even mentioned that in your notes. We could see that in several areas later in chapter 1, verse 27. Look what he says. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. We're all part of this, standing firm in one spirit, one mind. So it, it, it's not just that they're partners because they've given some dough. It's because they're in this together because of Christ and what He is doing in and through them. That's why He can call them at the opening verse, saints, right? You have been set apart by God. You are holy. It's interesting, it's the same term He'll use of the Corinthians. And I don't know about you, but that's the last word I'd use to describe the Corinthians is that they are holy. But in one sense, they are. They've been set apart in Christ. And so he says, the reason I'm joyful is, number one, you're partners with me. And the second, which I showed my cards earlier, is that the Lord will see them glorified. In other words, there's an end to this game that, that they're involved in, and that is until the day of Christ, right? That the Lord will perfect it. What's the basis of his assurity of this? The vitality of the church? The amount they give in the offering plate? No, it's based on Christ, right? It's based on knowing this is what the, I know the Lord. That's, notice what he says. Look at this. I'm sure, and again, um, this is extreme confidence and surety that the one who began a good work, I, I saw you come to Christ. I saw what the Lord did in and through you back when I was at Philippi, and I know that same God is going to see it completed, Right? You can't help but wonder if um, Epaphroditus might have been someone Paul led to the Lord. And Lydia, right? Odie and Syntyche. All these names that are mentioned, I have no doubt many of them became, we know, the, remember the jailer? He became a believer through Paul and his household. So there are many of these people that Paul led to the Lord. And he said, I saw it happen then, and I am sure that this, this one who will do this will sustain it. And again, as I mentioned there on the top of page two, joy is not dictated by present events. It's rooted in the future event, right? That's why an imprisonment, eh. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, all things work together for good. It doesn't mean that the things are good, right? Having 
a wife diagnosed with cancer or a daughter diagnosed with cancer is not good. But the end game, Romans 8 says, so that we become more like Christ. That's the good. And that there is a day when all of this crud will be done away with and we will be with the Lord for all eternity. Well, I'm starting to preach, so let's go to verse 7. He says, For it is right for me to think this about all of you. This idea that's being conveyed in this term, it's, it's right for me to think this way, is not just some esoteric idea that's floating in his mind. It's one that's based with action. And I, I, I highlight this. Paul's not only, well, Hawthorne does. Paul not only feels deeply for the Philippians, but as a consequence, he plans or schemes how best his concern for them can be actualized in a tangible way. And so he says in verse 7, it's right for me to think about this because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and the defense, all of you have become partners in God's grace. They, they have joined him. And I mentioned in your notes that Paul and the Philippians have this common bond as partners in God's grace. And again, that goes back to what he already highlighted. He says in verse 8, this is where it gets interesting. He says, For God is my witness that I long for all of you. I have the question in your notes, but it's also on the screen. Why do you think Paul feels it's necessary to employ the name of the Lord? I mean, it kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? Paul says it. I'm going to believe it. He's inspired by the Spirit when he writes. Why does he need to say, for God is my witness? Why would he highlight this in the letter? And there's no right or wrong answer. Scholars all uh, argue over this. Yeah, Kyle. Well, in one sense, yeah, he's isolated from them. So is there, there, it's kind of proof that indeed this is what I'm thinking. What else? Ah, very good. The idea of this idea, and all the way back to Deuteronomy, that a prophet has to have two witnesses. So it's kind of an idea the Lord is testifying to this. Epaphroditus could be another. Yep, good. What else? Yeah, I think the idea of stressing, um, he's being emphatic of what he's trying to convey to them. Any other ideas? That, that's a common one held by scholars, is what Paul is trying to do is say. Okay, bringing the Lord into the equation. Okay, united in that way, yes. Interesting. And that's going to become the standard, which we're going to see in a minute, just as it will later in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, yes. Yeah, only the Lord knows the heart. So uh, further confirmation, stressing, this is really how I feel about you. you something to think about. The text does not tell us, and scholars debate it. But nonetheless, he, Paul appeals to the Lord as, as evidence that I long, and, and by the way, that term has a very uh, strong intensity. This isn't just, I wish I could have another bowl of ice cream this, tonight. For all of you with, and then notice again, uh, and uh, Dick highlights this, with the affection of Christ Jesus. That is loaded. That is absolutely loaded. And uh, 
men, we are to love our wives as Christ loves the church. <laughs> right? Uh, if you're married, you know what that means. Um, and, and this is the same type of love that he, Paul is expressing to the church. I love you as, as Christ loves you. Uh, that's a bold statement. This is why I said earlier, I feel like you're trying to walk in giant shoes here. Paul is just a normal guy, but on another level, he is absolutely amazing. Uh, this, this, to humble himself, to, to serve this church, and to do what he's doing, uh, it's an old quote. It's in your notes. It's from Albrecht Bingle. This would be back from the, what, 1700s, 1700s, but 1800s. Uh, German scholar Albrecht Bingle wrote, It's not Paul who lives within Paul, but Christ Jesus, which is why Paul is not moved by, he uses the word bowels, but his very core of Paul, but by the very core of, of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Um, how's your prayer life for others? Right? How, how is your affection for those you're ministering to? Is it born out of selfish ambition or, or uh, self-service, or is it born out of, of a selfless service and love as Christ has has done. Christ sets the standard, and Christ will set the standard later in Philippians 2, and we'll see this when Paul says, we're all to walk in humility with one another, just as Christ, and he uses that as exhibit A in verse 5 of 2. Remember, one of the reasons for why he's writing is disunity in the camp, right? We'll get to the false teachers that have kind of gathered around the church like flies on a dead carcass in chapter 3, and then he'll deal with the two women, a problem in chapter 4, calling for unity. And so I think it's one of the reasons he has stressed y'all earlier in this, this prayer uh, four times, but also this idea that I'm setting a standard for you just as... Ultimately, Christ has set a standard that we're to love one another. Yeah, it's good. Yep. It's both. I, I would argue it's 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 Christ's love that sets the standard for Paul, and so. Later, we're going to see, so I would see it as more of a subjective, if you're asking subjective genitive, this idea, it's, it's Christ's love, which thus becomes the, the basis for the church. Yep. It's what I love about Paul. Uh, I mean, you read 2 Corinthians, the most autobiographical of the letters, right? I mean, chapter 1, he starts off, I despaired even of life. Uh, you think of, wow, this is the great apostle Paul, right? He charges hell with a water pistol. And he said, yeah, I, I struggle. Um, and, I, I, and yet he calls 
this, they call it the imatio, the imitate me. Paul says several times, imitate me. But ultimately, it's because he's taking us back to Christ, isn't he? I, I think. So if he didn't do that, if he didn't take us back to Christ, I'd be a little concerned with Paul. Uh, he is a type A personality, but at the same time, he's careful. I think at the end of the day that Christ is the ultimate standard. Did I answer? I didn't probably answer your question well, but yeah, I, I, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Paul will later in his letter he'll say, "I am the the worst of sinners," and understanding a better understanding of God's grace, etc. Um, and yet he can say, "Follow after me. Do what I'm doing," because. Yes, because ultimately he's saying, take us to Christ. Yep, I think that's right. Well, notice what he prays for, not only giving this thanksgiving, but in verses 9 through 11, he has a specific prayer that he gives. And in fact, there's two elements to it. First of all, he, he prays in verse 9 that their love will abound more and more, which implies what? What does that imply? They need to grow. Right? All right. They've not obtained the perfection love yet. It also insinuates what? That it's already there. Right? Otherwise, it can't increase. Uh, you know, Jim Kapinski, I'll put him on the spot. He'll tell you, you're not going to have a petunia grow out of that ground if there's not already something there, a seed, to get it going. That wasn't the best example, but oh, well, it worked. Just a plug for Heartland, right? right. Thank you, Jim. All right, yes. Yeah, that was free. So their love will increase. And secondly, their love is accomplished by knowledge and discernment. This isn't uh, some love, right? This isn't the uh, Hallmark uh, movie love. Uh, this, This love is rooted, grounded, directed, by the idea of that it's in knowledge and insight. And in your notes, I highlight what these two terms indicate. Knowledge speaks of practical understanding, which allows one to apply all areas of life. To have knowledge in Scripture means that you're also acting on it. Uh, This idea that it's simply theoretical doesn't wash. Secondly, it's spiritual discernment. And and this idea of, of how they're to interact with one another, as well as how they're to live their lives and, and this is seen in that they, so that they will be sincere and blameless. The next page, I highlight under verse 10, the Apostles' Prayer seeks for the Philippians to not only be morally pure, but also that they conduct their lives so as not to give an offense either towards those within the church or those outside it. Right? And what's the purpose of all this? He's very clear that you'll be filled with righteousness. Righteousness that comes from God, Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit, in order, here it is, to glorify the Lord. Right? That's, that's the underlying purpose of why he's praying for the church. I was convicted with this this week as I was studying this. When I pray for individuals, you know, you pray, ah, oh, Lord, heal their body or uh, intervene in this. But when's the last time I just prayed, Lord, help them to grow in knowledge and discernment so that they might glorify you better? Okay, that sounds like a nice platitude, but at the end of the day, Lord, help them to glorify you in their thought process and how they're acting and what they're doing. I, I, don't, I don't know about you, maybe you, I, I, I was convicted of that 
as I read this, this idea. This is our goal. And notice the end of chapter uh, uh, 4. Look at Philippians 4. Look at the end of the book, verse 20. May glory be given to God our Father forever and ever. That's the end game. That's why Paul can say in Acts 20, I count it all loss. And we talked about this. He had everything, humanly speaking, a person would want in the first century as a Jew. Right? He knows his lineage, which he'll even cite later in Philippians. He was born on the right side of the tracks. His family was wealthy. They sent him to Jerusalem to study. He studied with the best of the teachers, so he went to the Harvard of the day. Right? He had power. I mean, he was the one sent by the religious rulers to Damascus. Right? And they didn't send, he led the charge. And I think he would have had a seat in the Sanhedrin. He says, I count, and, and a Roman citizenship. He says, I count all this loss for the cause of Christ. Why? It's so that Christ might be glorified. And that's his prayer. for. And in the midst of being in prison, you want to talk about, oh, you know. My landlady, who's now with the Lord, she had an amazing story. Her mom died giving birth. Her dad died when she was four. She was passed around from family member to family member. The list goes on of all the horrible things that happened to her growing up, etc. And yet, I don't think I met anyone who had more joy in serving the Lord. She was an amazing lady. Um, she's one of those the world was not worthy of them. And, and why? Uh, she was always talking about glorifying the Lord and keeping our eyes on the end game. Right? Well, what do we do with this text? Let me give you some things to hang on your beak as you walk out. Number one, unity. Unity among believers is vital for both their individual spiritual growth and for the glory of Christ. I wrote in that second line, jealousy and dissension among believers serves as one of Satan's most effective weapons, and I still believe that. (laughs) I think some of his greatest attacks is not outside the church, it's within the church. It amazes me, uh, even recently I heard this, well, you know, we're in a competition. We're not in a competition. Someone recently asked, well, you know, we'd like to give you a bigger platform. I said, I don't need a bigger platform. This is about Christ. Uh, I don't want to sound, whoa, is Hoffitz, but uh, I mean, that, right? That's what we're in this for. I remember uh, John Hanna, the church's historian who teaches down at Dallas, Chuck Swindoll became president. And he was calling in all these professors and just saying, you know, getting to know them. And he asked John Hanna, he goes, what are, your, what are your goals for the next five years? And you have to know John Hanna. He's great. I'd love to get him to come speak. He said, well, I have no goals. It's all about Christ. Whatever he wants to do, I just focus on him. <laughs> but this is John. But in essence, this is, it's, it's about the gospel going forth. Later, Paul's going to talk about this, right? In verse 15 of chapter 1, some are preaching Christ with envy and rivalry, others with goodwill. He says, who cares as long as Christ is preached? That's what I love about Iron to Iron. It's non-denominational. There are a ton of churches represented here. I think there's a value in that in one sense. I'm a great supporter of the local church. Don't get me wrong. I'm so thankful for the local churches represented in this room. But at the same time, we can come, you know, we got super lapsarians, I don't know, we got Armenians, we got Calvinists, we got the whole bag in this room, and yet we can come together and study the Word and fellowship around the Word. And that, that's exciting. Well, 
Yeah, and, and I mean, there's a time for disunity. Don't get me wrong. There's a time for separation. Uh, but yes, the end game is, is what Paul's highlighting here, right? And, and Odie and Stinky are creating real problems. And, and yet, they are partakers of the gospel, right? They're part of the saints that Paul's addressing. Well, anyway, we'll go on. Secondly, the Lord works, uh, as we see here, the Lord works through what the world considers weakness. Be careful, uh, be careful when you're selecting your pastor or a church leader, you're not looking for another Saul. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? I, I wrote down here, careful not to determine success in ministry by numerical growth, impressive credentials, the physical facilities, or comfortable lifestyles. Careful. 1 Corinthians, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is a church that was enamored with wealth, and it was a wealthy town. And you realize Corinth had two harbors, both the Aegean and the Adriatic. I mean, it was one wealthy city. They had all they needed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not, Paul, this is speaking, I did not come with superior eloquence or wisdom as I proclaimed the testimony of God. That's an amazing statement. Yeah. I didn't come with how to win friends and influence people textbook in my back pocket. I just came with the gospel. That's what I was doing. And so the Lord works through the world when, which considers weakness. And, and Paul is, you know, here he is saying, look what the, the Lord is doing through you, this church at Philippi, predominantly Gentiles nestled up in northern Macedonia. And yet the Lord is using you mightily. Keep it up, right? And then one other thing to walk away with today is, is just this template for prayer. In fact, I entitled this The Elements of Successful Prayer. And, and what am I talking about here? I think what, what Paul is highlighting um, and how we pray for one another. Our prayers for family members and friends should include the desire to see them grow in their knowledge of the Lord. Philippians 1 is not some atypical segment in Paul's, in Pauline the Pauline corpus. Turn to Colossians 1. Look at this. If you're in Philippians, it's just one book over. Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 14. Look what he prays for the church. <clears throat> for this reason, we also, from the day we heard about it, and remember, he's not been to Colossae. He heard about the news from Colossae from Epaphras, not Epaphroditus. I know that's very confusing. And I know a, naked, a wicked New Testament professor would often ask that on a test, que a test question, and I, I won't do that to you. My students hated me for doing that, but Epaphras is with Colossae. He's never been there. He'd like to visit. And he says, we've heard about how you've, you have ceased praying for you and asking God to fill you with what? Here it is. The knowledge of His will so that you may live worthy of the Lord and please Him, bearing fruit in every good deed, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened, verse 12, giving thanks to God. He, just, he, de he delivered us from the power of darkness and transformed us to the kingdom of the Son He loves. Again, looking to the end, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that great? And so, your prayer life. Maybe take some assessment this week on how you're praying for individuals. When's the last time you've prayed, Lord, for your spouse that she might grow in the knowledge of God or your children? 
Are they growing in the knowledge of Him so that they might walk worthy? Right? Um, Lord, uh, it's the prayer for my kids. Lord, give them wisdom beyond their years. <laughs> in this day and age, in the world we live in, I don't know about you, but aren't you glad you're not a kid again? And the things that they face. Um, the very opening quote, and I'll close with this. It's from one of my favorite writers of time past, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, Wolfgang's not here today, but uh, Wolf, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor, if you remember, was part of the resistance and was executed one month before World War II ended. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and Bonhoeffer, if you know the story, was in England, even could have gotten to the U.S., but went back to Germany. Karl Barth wrote him and said, you are the shepherd of your flock. Get back to Germany, knowing full well what he was saying to, to, to Bonhoeffer. You're going to die because the Nazi regime was not going to tolerate the confessional church, the Bonhoeffers of the world. He writes, if the good works were a galaxy of human virtues, we should then have to glorify the disciples, not God. But there's nothing for us to glorify in the disciple who bears the cross or in the community whose light so shines because it stands visibly on the hill. Only the Father which is in heaven can be praised for the good works. It is by seeing the cross and the community beneath it that man come to believe in God. And that's our prayer, isn't it, for one another? That people will glorify Him because we've grown in our knowledge and in our love for one another. Right? It's a great prayer, and it is a difficult one uh, in, in one sense, but it's a beautiful prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Here's Paul, shackled, prospect of being beheaded, considered a rebel rouser. He's been shipwrecked, and, and the whole mess, just two, already two and a half years at Caesarea then as a prisoner, then being shipwrecked and then brought to Rome and under Nero of all people. And yet, he says, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. And he could say to the church, you are partners with me and you need to keep pressing on. Why? Because he is sure of one thing, that he who began a good work will see that we are perfected. And Father, that is you. And we are so grateful for the assurance we have because of you. Father, there are some men in this room who are going through some real storms. And I just pray that they would cling to the rock. And Lord, help us all to grow in our knowledge and discernment. Why? So that we ultimately might glorify you. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.